Well, this morning, as Lucas said, we're beginning a brand new uh, uh, series and a brand new season here at Fellowship. Uh, we're beginning the season of Advent. And you might be wondering, what does the word Advent actually mean? Well, the word Advent literally means arrival or coming. And so uh, what we do as a church during the season of Advent is we remember and we celebrate the fact that Jesus arrived on the soil of this planet to redeem the world. And so uh, we, we remember the incarnation, the fact that Jesus arrived, that he came into the world to save us. And it's also a time where we look forward to the time where Jesus will arrive or Jesus will come to the world again. So Jesus came the first time uh, to uh, inaugurate, to uh, begin his work of redemption, and he's going to come on the final day to uh, fulfill or to culminate that work of redemption. And so in Advent, we look back to his first coming and we look forward to the time where he's going to come again. So uh, Advent means coming. And uh, the, the weeks of Advent, we're going to divide them into four different weeks. Now, traditionally, uh, you study a different topic every week. That's why there's four candles. Uh, each Campbell, candle, uh, Campbell, Bill Campbell, uh, rep, <coughs> rep, I can't talk this morning. Uh, each cam, uh, candle uh, rep, <laughs> represents a theme. And so uh, this morning, the theme we, we, uh, we're going to look at is the theme of hope. Now, uh, we've got a missionary that always reminds me of hope. His name is John Luke. And uh, John Luke is a French guy who is fluent in Spanish. He's married an African woman. He's an amazing guy, incredibly smart guy, um, if you've ever, ever met him. But he comes once a year, and he shares about uh, his work in the urban slums of Mexico. And so uh, the, the last time he came, he brought a, a, a slides, and he did this presentation. And he talked about what it's like to work in the urban slums. And he's got all these statistics. I mean, he's a, a brilliant guy. He, you know, I, I went there looking forward uh, to hear all about the issues and the problems that they're facing down in Mexico City. And, uh, you know, in Mexico City in the slums, I mean, they're, they're facing, uh, they've got medical needs, you know, not, they don't have adequate medical care. Um, they need jobs, you know. These people in the urban slums, uh, they need jobs. Um, they need clean water. Uh, they need uh, income and food. Um, they have all of these needs, and, of course, John Luke uh, has all the statistics on all of those needs. But as he began his presentation the last time he came, he stood up before us, <clears throat> and he said, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you the question, what do you think is the greatest need of these folks living in the urban slums? Like, what do you think they need more than anything else? And I was thinking, well, water, uh, food, jobs, like, what would it be? And he said the greatest need these people face that they, that they deal with on a daily basis is the need for hope. He says, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, more than their need for anything else, these folks need a light at the end of the tunnel. And I was thinking, John Luke is right. Uh, one of our deep, most deepest human needs is a need for hope. We as humans need to see a light at the end of the tunnel if we're going to keep on going. And uh, Louis Smedes is a theologian. He, uh, he agrees with John Luke, <clears throat> and he says this. He says, Hope is bread in the bone. Our spirits were made for hope the way our hearts were made to love and our brains were made to think and our hands were made to, for, to make things. Our hearts are drawn to hope as an eagle is drawn to the sky. And then he ends his quote by saying this, Keep hoping, you keep living. Stop hoping, you die inside. And so uh, Lewis Smedes agrees with John Luke. He says, 
If you keep hope alive, you will stay alive. But as soon as you stop seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you can't go on. We need hope to live. We are hope-based creatures. Uh, Hope is one of our deepest needs. And I think sometimes we underestimate hope. You know, we think of all of our needs, we think of all of our wants, all the things we want in life. Have you ever stopped to think that the one thing you need more than anything else is hope? And maybe you say, well, John Luke, I've never met him, and Louis Smead's never heard of him. Well, maybe you'll, you'll, uh, you'll listen to Mumford and Sons, <clears throat> the, the great band. Uh, and one of their songs, Ghosts, uh, he, he, re- he sings this line. He says, so give me hope in the darkness that I will see the light, because oh, that gave me such a fright. But I will hold on as long as you like. Just promise me that I will be all right. What are, the, what, what are the Mumford and Sung singing? They're singing about our most primal need for hope. They're singing about our most basic need to see light at the end of the tunnel. John Luke, Lewis Smeads, Mumford and Sons, they all say we need hope. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you hopeful this morning? As you sit in the seat here uh, on the, the very beginning of Advent, how are you doing on the hopometer? Can I say that? Is there, a, is there such a thing, <laughs> hopometer? I mean, how is your hope quotient? Uh, can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Are you hopeful? I mean, it's so basic, it's so primal, it's so urgent, it's so necessary. Are you a hopeful person? Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've, you've got to honestly answer the question, well, not really. I mean, maybe you're, standing, you're sitting here this morning and you're having a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, maybe your hopes uh, for our nation are crumbling. Uh, maybe you've been d- disappointed at the last election and your hopes for the future are just kind of dashed. <clears throat> maybe your hopes for uh, the future of your family are dimming. Uh, maybe you look at your marriage and you think, uh, you know, this relationship is not working. And at one time I had hope, but now the light at the end of the tunnel is dimming. Or maybe, uh, you know, you're living in quiet desperation. Maybe day by day, uh, week by week, you go by and it's just hard to get up in the morning. And you're getting cynical. Why? It's because you're losing hope. Hope is dwindling. You can't see that light. And Lewis Smead says you need this to live. And so maybe you're in that place where you're sitting in darkness. Well, if that's you this morning, uh, you're in a very similar place as the people that Isaiah writes to here at the beginning of his prophecy. Uh, The people of Israel at this point in their national life were in a hopeless situation. And so here's what's going on. Uh, Israel, their glory days were behind them. Uh, they uh, They had sort of a glorious past, but it's been a long time since things have been well. You know, they, they remember back to King David and how leadership was so well back, you know, uh, hundreds of years previous, but, but now they've, they've gone through poor leaders over and over again. And not only do they have poor leadership, their, their nation is divided internally, like literally. Uh, you know, they are, they've been torn apart, and now there's, the nation, there's Judah and Israel. And so the nation literally has been split in two, and they're experiencing uh, internal fracture nationally. But they have threats that are looming on the outside. Isaiah mentioned Sennacherib and, and uh, other pagan uh, rulers that were threatening to defeat the nation. And then exile is not in the, in, in the uh, distant future. 
Exile looms on the horizon. And so here Isaiah is writing to people that are sitting in a great darkness. In fact, that's how he describes them at one point. He says, I'm writing to a people that are sitting in darkness. And so uh, where you sit in the chair this morning, maybe you're in a similar place as the people Isaiah writes to. And I want you to see that what Isaiah offers them is he offers them hope. He offers them hope. I mean, amid all of their needs, I mean, they're fractured internally, they've got enemies on the outside, they're dealing with all of these things, and what does Isaiah Isaiah do? I want you to see that he gives this nation and he gives us a vision of hope. He gives them a very vivid, uh, a clear and compelling picture of the ultimate future. Now, hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not like he says, you know, things are not that bad. I mean, Isaiah is a realist, and he will tell them that things are horrible. Um, and, And it's not just an uncertain, you know, wish for the future. You know, in our world, we think about hope, and when we say hope, we mean uncertainty. You say, are you sure about that? And we say, well, no, I'm not sure, but I hope. And so Isaiah doesn't give them wishful thinking. He doesn't give them uncertainty. He gives them hope. And in the Bible, uh, this is what hope is. The biblical idea of hope is life-shaping certainty about the future. It is having a clear and certain and for sure vision of what's ultimately in store for us. And Isaiah, in his vision here, gives them a picture of that. And I want to go through this picture. I want us to get this vivid picture in our minds. I I want to see how we also have this same hope. And I want you to see that it'll help you keep going in life. So we're going to look at the vivid picture and how it changes us or shapes our lives. So let's get into the vivid picture. Um, Isaiah gives us, uh, first he's going to talk about, in this vision, uh, this word picture of the highest mountain. And so uh, let's get into it. He says... um, What does our ultimate future have in store for us? He says, I want you to think about the highest mountain. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So notice he says it shall come to pass or it will come to pass. This is something that's going to happen. And he says in the latter days, so he's talking about the ultimate future, the very end, God's God's fulfillment of everything. He says it's going to come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And we'll stop there. And so notice the first thing uh, uh, that Isaiah gives us about our ultimate future, our hope, is this image of the highest mountain. Now, in the ancient world, mountains were places where people met with God. Uh, The divine and the human uh, overlapped and interlocked on mountains in the ancient world. You know, there are high places. If you wanted to meet with God, you'd go up to these places and you'd sacrifice to the deity. Um, Now, in in Israel, they they had a similar belief, and so that's why the temple of God, the place where God's people met with the creator God, was built on where? It was built on Mount Zion. So mountains are places of the presence of God. Mountains are places where uh, humans and God, uh, they, they come together and they overlap and they meet. 
And the thing you need to know about Mount Zion is actually in Jerusalem, Mount Zion is not really a huge mountain. It's more like a hill. And it's kind of about as high as every other hill is in Jerusalem. And so uh, picture Batesville. When you come into Batesville, um, is there some high, you know, exalted peak around here? No, it's all about the same, you know, uh, elevation. You, you've got hills everywhere, but which is the highest hill in Batesville? You don't really know. It's kind of unclear. Uh, I've heard that College Heights is actually the highest elevation here. Did you know that? Higher than Ramsey Mountain. Um, you're saying, who cares? I don't know what that is about, but that's, that's where I live, College Heights. It's the highest elevation, but we don't, it's sort of unclear, isn't it? And that's the way life is with God. I mean, when you look around, there are all sorts of, of big mountains in the world. There is the mountain of, of adversity, adversity there are the mountain of war and the, and the mountains of troubles, all these challenges, all of these mountains in the world. And, and sometimes they look about just as big as God does. And sometimes, like Israel, you might be asking, where is God? Is he present? Is he prominent? I mean, where is he? I can't really see him. Everything else seems about the same elevation. But Isaiah says, in the last days, here's our hope, God will be the highest mountain. In other words, God is going to appear as present and prominent in his world. Right now, he's kind of unclear. Right now, it's kind of fuzzy where God is. But in the future, God is going to be prominent and present and crystal clear as the highest peak in his world. Now, notice it says that he's so high that all the nations are going to gather together. The whole human community, the whole human family gathers together this, on, around this highest mountain, which is the center of everything in the world. God is clear. God is present. God is visible. And this is what we have to look forward to. Now, in, um, in Los Angeles, where I'm from, there actually is a very high uh, peak. There's a very high elevation around the city. There's the San Bernardino Mountains. And uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains, there's an elevation that reaches about 11,000 feet. And what's so cool about Los Angeles is that you could go down to a zero elevation and surf and drive three hours and go to 11,000 feet and ski in the same day. I mean, you, that's, that's awesome, right? But here's the thing about Los Angeles. You guys didn't think that was all that awesome. <laughs> here's the thing about Los Angeles. You can't see the mountains. You look around, you can't see them anywhere. Why? It's because of the smog. <laughs> it's everywhere. And you look around, and you can see sort of this shadowy, dark, you know, figures in the background. You think, well, what are those? You know, I don't really know what they are. It's because you, it's, it, they're not visible. And all you can see are buildings and traffic and strip malls. I mean, this is the view. But in the fall, there's something called the Santa Ana winds. And the Santa Ana winds blow the smog about 30 or 40 miles off the coast. And there are days when you can walk out, wake up in September and walk outside, and it's like you're shocked. What are those? Where do they come from? Well, they've always been there. It's 11,000 feet. They're always there. And what Isaiah says is this is what we have to look forward to. Right now, God is a shadowy figure in the background. And sometimes you, you ask the question, where is he? But in the latter day, God will be crystal clear. He will be the highest mountain. He will be prominent and present in his world. Paul the Apostle at one point says, right now we see, we, we see as in a mirror dimly. 
We see like when you get out of the shower and the mirror is fogged up. That's how we see God. But he says, in the latter day, at the end of all things, we will see God face to face. He's going to be clear, he's going to be present, he's going to be prominent in his world. Now notice, uh, he's going to be present in his world, in this world. A lot of times when we think about the ultimate future, we think about us flying up into this ethereal world. You know, we're going to go up to heaven. And we, we imagine things like clouds and harps and white robes and perfect hairdos and things like that. But notice the vision that Isaiah has of the end is not of us going up into heaven. What is it? God coming down into this world again. God is going to come and dwell in the world that he created. He's going to return. This is why we talk about the coming of Christ. And so that's the first picture here, the highest mountain. Are you envisioning that? This is what Isaiah wants us to do, to burn that, that image in our mind. This is what we have to look forward to. But then he goes on, and he, and he talks about the equitable judgment. <clears throat> in verse 4, notice, uh, what does God do when he gets here? What does God do when he's present and prominent? What, what is the first thing that he engages in? <clears throat> verse 4, he says, And he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares, and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And so when God comes, when he's prominent in the world, what's he going to do? He's going to judge. And it says here, uh, it's such a vivid picture. I love what he says. He said, God will decide disputes for many people. What is it talking about? It's talking about equity. It's talking about fairness. Now, the world we live in now is inequitable, and the world we live in now is not fair. You know, you look around, and you, and you say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, you, you see the poor being oppressed pressed by the wealthy in many cases. You see people that are, are living in poverty, like I mentioned at the beginning. And you look around, and, and, and in your mind, you're just thinking, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why do you say that? It's because in your mind, you've got a picture of the world the way it should be. You've got an objective picture of justice. When you say something's not fair, you're not just saying, I don't like it. You're saying something's wrong with the world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's not fair, and it should be. And what Isaiah says is, in the end, God is going to right every wrong. In the world that we live in now, uh, there is an equity and there is false judgment, but in the end, the one who sees with crystal clarity is going gonna, is gonna to reverse the fortunes. He's going to make all things right. There's going to be an equitable judgment. Because in this world, I mean, we as human beings, so, so often, uh, you know, we have a justice system and we try to get it right, but so often we don't. And I think about as a parent, you know, most of my job as a parent, I look down at this word where it says God will decide disputes. I feel like I do that 90% of the time. I've got four boys, and there are disputes all day long. Sometimes very loud, violent disputes. And, you know, I'll be in the kitchen, and I'll hear yelling and screaming coming from the bedroom, and I'll, and I'll run in, and both boys are crying on the ground. And I'll say, what happened? And, and one of them will say, well, Jude hit me in the face. And I'll look at Jude, why did you do that? It's because he hit me in the face. And I think, I don't, know what's, I don't know what's right. I didn't see what happens, and so what do I do? Both go to your rooms. 
But inevitably, one of the kids sa says, Dad, he huffs up, huff, and he says, Dad, it's not fair. Dad, it's not right. And maybe he's right. Because I didn't see what happened. Because I don't have perfect judgment. But what Isaiah says is, in the end, the one who has perfect judgment will sit at the bench. And God hasn't abandoned the world. And he sees all and he knows all. And in the end, he will decide disputes with perfect equity. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. One of my favorite theologians. And as a young boy, he, he grew up in former Yugoslavia and he saw tremendous injustice. His father was put in a concentration camp. His, his older brother's head was crushed by soldiers. And he experienced incredible persecution throughout his life. Well, Miroslav Volf went off and got a seminary degree and he did, started writing books about theology. And all of his books are colored by this idea of injustice. And what he says in one of his books is he says, you know, I've always been angry at what happened to my family. And I've always wanted vengeance. And I've always wanted retribution. And he says, the only way I got past that anger is by realizing that there is a judge and that I'm not him. And one day, look, we've got a justice system, but one day, the one who is perfect will make all things right, the equitable judgment. <clears throat> so that's what we have to look forward to. But then he gives us a final word picture. It's a beautiful one. And he says in verse 4, uh, notice he says, uh, after God dis decides disputes, it says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a beautiful picture. So God arrives, God judges equitably, and then finally what happens? There's shalom, there's peace that comes into the world. And the picture he gives is so vivid. He says, all of the weapons are going to be bent into farming instruments. All the things that they used to make war before, all the things that they used to damage and hurt and, and destroy one another, God is going to turn those things into, into instruments that plow the soil. Farming instruments. I mean, what a beautiful image. It's the image of shalom. And this is what the world was made for. You know, at the very beginning, the world we lived in was a world of peace. It was a world of shalom. Everything fit together. Everything worked in harmony. All relationships were right. But then sin entered into the world, and suddenly there's a vandalism of shalom. The world is ripped apart. It's relationally fractured. And suddenly peace is gone, and there's war, and there's racism, and there's violence. And there's drones and atomic bombs and, and, and all the like. But there will come a day when God will come back to his earth, and he will bring shalom again. And he will put the world back together. And he's going to make everything right. And there's going to be relational harmony. Isaiah in, in another place says, the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's a picture of shalom. And I love how it says at the end here, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's almost like he says they're going to forget what war was. They're not going to learn, they don't, they're, they're going to forget what they used their instruments for. Uh, you know, when I was younger, my, my dad had all of these antiques in his garage. And I'd go out there, and I would pick things up. I remember I picked up a crossbow. I mean, what does a guy do with a crossbow in California? I don't know. 
But he had this wooden thing. And I remember going out there and going, Dad, what did you use this for? I'd never seen anything like it. And it's funny, my kids were out in the garage at our house the other day, and they, they were rummaging through this box, and they pulled out a cassette tape. <laughs> Dad, what do you do with this thing? And I, <laughs> that's where we are. And that's the way it's going to be with weapons in God's future world. What did we use these things for? What were these things about? And God is going to turn the weapons into farming instruments. There's going to be peace. And so do you see the picture? Those of us who are sitting in darkness this morning, we're hopeless. The light is dwindling. Isaiah says, I want to give you light at the end of the tunnel. This is not optimism. This is not wishful thinking. This is a future reality for all the people of God. This is what we're all moving towards. This is where the world is going. This is the vision. This is a clear and compelling picture of what is in store for all of us. Now, at this point, someone might ask, well, that's beautiful. I really, I really like that picture. But how does it change my life today? I mean, I've got to go to work tomorrow. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I do have a crossbow. And I want to use it on my boss. <laughs> I'm going to go to work tomorrow, or I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to ask the question, where is God? I mean, what difference does this vision have to my real, in my real life? It's the opiate of the masses, Karl Marx said. It's pie in the sky. It doesn't really make a difference in your life. Well, notice what Isaiah says here, Isaiah verse five, 2, verse 5. <clears throat> he doesn't just give the vision for us to marvel at it. Notice what he says. He paints the picture, and then in verse 5 he says, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So he says, I've given you the light at the end of the tunnel. I've given you a vision of a bright future. What do I want you to do? He says, I want you to walk in it. Don't just marvel at it. Don't just study it. He says, I want you to grab hold of it. And walk in it. Walk in the light of the Lord. And so what are we supposed to do with our hope as we sit in darkness? We're supposed to grab hold of it. Lay hold of eternal life. Hasten the day of his coming is, is what the New Testament says. Walk in the light of your hope. What does that look like for you? you know, we, we, we have this vision. We have this, this reality where all the world is going. What does that look like for you and me? Let me give you a few ideas what it might look like. It might look like activism. Notice walk is a very active word. And when, you are, when it's burned in your mind what's going to happen in the end, it actually makes you very impatient with the world as it is. Remember Martin Luther King Jr.? Very impatient with racism. Why? Why was he an activist? It's because Martin Luther King Jr. got a vision of the end. And what did he see? He told us what he saw. He said, look, I see justice rolling down like a waterfall. And I see equity and I see peace and I'm going to bring it here now. And so it looks like activism. Listen to this quote that N.T. Wright, uh, listen, N.T. Wright says this. <clears throat> we can't build the kingdom by our own efforts. It will take another mighty act of God to bring it in at last. But we can build for the kingdom 
every act of justice, every word of truth, every creation of genuine beauty, every act of self-sacrificial love will be reaffirmed in the last day in the new world. In the sight of the foolish, such actions seem to die, to be lost without a trace. Far better to live for oneself or look out for number one. But we can be at peace and wait for the kingdom into which our present little efforts to build will one day be incorporated. So maybe that means in your community, in your family, in your workplace, you begin to work for justice and you work for shalom. What does it look like for you to anticipate the end and bring that into your family, into your life, into your community? So it might look like activism. It might look like patience. This vision gives us patient, patience with the present reality. Because a lot of times we get really impatient, don't we? Is it always going to be like this? When is it going to get better? Maybe it'll never get better. Maybe you've got a chronic illness. Am I going to live like this forever? This vision shows you, no, you're not. Your suffering will end. God will wipe away every tear. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, who was a quadriplegic, she, uh, she couldn't walk. She dove off a pier when she was in her teens. She uh, dove into shallow water. She broke her neck. And somebody asked her, how do you have hope to get up in the morning each day? You can't walk. Where do you get the courage? Where do you summon the courage to keep on going? And she says, well, listen. This is what she said. She said, I know I'm suffering now, but Christ gives me hope for the future. The Bible speaks of our bodies as being glorified in heaven. My younger year... In my younger years, this always seemed like a foreign concept to me. But now that I'm a quadriplegic, I will be healed on the expiration day. Listen, I, have not been, I, have, I haven't been cheated out of being a complete person. And then she says, I'm just going through a 40-year delay. And so Paul at one point says, these light momentary afflictions cannot be compared with the far more eternal weight of glory. And it gives you perspective on your sufferings. Finally, this, help, this causes us to hope in the right things. Some of you this morning are hoping in the wrong things. And notice this vision is, is a vision of the ultimate future. Isaiah is not coming along and saying, hey, look, don't worry, things are going to get better now. I mean, this is not what he gives them. He doesn't give them hope in making more money or getting a better leader now. He points them forward to the ultimate reality. And there are many of us, you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. Maybe you're putting your hope in getting just that perfect job. Or maybe you're getting, putting your hope in getting that perfect man in the office. Or maybe you're putting your hope in, in having that perfect marriage or those perfect kids. They're not out there. You've always got to push your hope beyond the present world. Because when your hope is beyond the present world, it's bigger than your sufferings. Nothing can take it away. It's inextinguishable. And therefore, it's durable. And so this is what Isaiah gives them. This is what he gives us. And I, I want to just close here by asking the question, how do we get the hope? And this will be short. How do we get the hope? Well, in, at Advent, Jesus Christ came into the world he, he walked on our soil. And then it says that at one point he hung on a cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, Ephesians says that many of us in this world find ourselves in a situation we are, where we are without hope, without God in the world. And Jesus on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, became without hope and without God for that moment. And he did that to give us an ultimate future. He lost hope so that we could get it. He put himself out so that we might bring ourselves in and see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so as we move on in Advent, we've looked at hope, and next week we're going to look at peace and what that looks like. But I want you to meditate on hope this week. Hope is bread in the bone. Stop hoping and you stop living. Stop hoping and you die inside. You need light at the end of the tunnel. And Jesus gives it to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for <clears throat> this message of hope that you give us in the gospel. There are many of us, Lord, who are struggling in life and dealing on, on a daily basis with um, uh, quiet desperation, uh, maybe a sense of sitting in darkness. Lord, I pray that you would remind us this morning that you have given us an ultimate future, that you would give us a clear and compelling picture of where we're headed, all of us. And God, that it might change our lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.